Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark chapter 16. And if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 853. And we have been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, together as a church family. And this morning we are coming to the final chapter uh, in Mark chapter 16. And... uh, You'll notice there in our English uh, Standard Version Bible, uh, there is a heading that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Um, uh, If there are people that uh, would like, we can discuss this in our sermon discussion afterwards, uh, after the morning service. Uh, But uh, I won't take time uh, during the service uh, to really dwell on uh, that textual point. Uh, But we can talk about it uh, in our, our discussion time. But we're reading in Mark chapter 16 and reading down verses 1 to 11. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Jesus had been uh, crucified at Golgotha. You remember, as we've been going through Mark, uh, we have looked at all the things that led up to that point. Uh, The betrayal, the arrest, uh, the conviction, uh, the condemnation, both by the Sanhedrin and by Pilate. We thought about uh, the, the experience of his suffering, the scourging that he went through, but also about what happened on the cross and how even a Roman soldier said truly, This was the Son of God. We looked at what happened afterwards when Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin, came before Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. But when he was able to confirm that Jesus was indeed dead, uh, he gave the body of Jesus to Joseph uh, for burial. But you remember that Joseph and Nicodemus, and perhaps even their servants, Uh, had to work with haste because by the time they took Jesus down from the cross, it was past 3 p.m. And 
according to uh, the, the practice in the Old Covenant, uh, the Sabbath actually began at sunset. Uh, so it was a matter of hours that they were working with, that no work was to be done on the Sabbath, and that would include even this practice of the ritual uh, washing and burial process. And so while they were able to do some of that, they weren't able to do that completely. And they did it very uh, uh, with haste. But you remember that Jesus' death uh, was something that was witnessed, and not just by the Roman soldiers, uh, but also by the women. Mark has been tracing that uh, throughout these events. He tells us that the three women, um, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, were there at the cross. They watched Jesus being crucified. And we're told that two of those women also went to see where Jesus' body was laid in the tomb of Joseph. Uh, And so they had witnessed uh, these events taking place. But this morning we want to look at what happened after Jesus' crucifixion. We want to think about what happened after Jesus' burial. We want to think about the empty tomb and how the empty tomb really shapes the, the Christian understanding of God's salvation. How our understanding of Jesus is shaped not only by his death, but by his resurrection. And because Jesus has, raised, uh, has been raised from the dead, we are to believe in him. We want to look at these verses in just a couple of thoughts. We want to think about the approach of the women to the tomb. So the approach to the tomb, and then the announcement from the tomb. Well, first we want to think about the approach of these women. It says there in verse 1 that when the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. Uh, These women, as mentioned, they were there uh, at the cross. They had witnessed these things. They were there, two of them were there, when Jesus' body was laid in the tomb of Joseph. But now they are coming, these same women are coming to anoint his body because Joseph and Nicodemus had to do what they did with haste. Uh, They didn't complete the burial process. And so as a way of honoring Jesus and his death, uh, these women are wanting to follow up and to complete that process. Uh, They're still reeling with the effects of Jesus's death. But as they're approaching, uh, uh, it tells us there, uh, they had went and bought spices uh, to complete that process, to anoint his body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from, from the entrance of the tomb? The stone, uh, we said before that uh, expensive tombs would have had a stone covering them. Uh, and Joseph was a rich man, we know. Uh, and Joseph's uh, tomb vault uh, that was cut into the hill of Palestine would have been a, a vault that likely would have been about a six by nine vault. But those kind of uh, tombs would have been sealed over with a, a stone, like a disc, uh, disc-like shape to it. And it would be rolled into place. And most likely it would be on a slot uh, with a slight incline. In other words, it would be easy for it to roll into place, but it would be more difficult to roll it back because you'd be going against the incline. And it would be something that covers the mouth of the tomb. And so it could only be opened from the outside and not from the inside. 
But as these women are approaching the tomb, they're suddenly thinking to themselves, after having bought these spices, how are we going to move this large stone? That might seem like a very obvious thing for them to miss. Uh, But you only have to think about your own experience. If you can remember an experience where you went through something uh, that was very traumatic, uh, something that at least uh, gripped you, something that shocked you. When you go through something difficult like that, it, it absorbs all of your attention. That when people go through something uh, hard, all of their mind's attention is fixated. It is frozen on that one event. That time carries on, but they're, they're not able to really process what is going on, all these other factors they're still stuck on this one thing that had happened. And these women had just witnessed their master being crucified. They watched him die. And having watched him die, some of them went and watched him being laid to rest in a tomb. And so the fact that they aren't thinking about the stone here is because they are still reeling with the effects of the death of their master, the death of their Lord. And so now, as it were, they're wrestling with the question of who will move away this stone? How is it that we're going to open this uh, stone to be able uh, to approach uh, the body of Jesus? Uh, But as they approach, they see that the stone had been rolled back. So the approach of the tomb, it was done by these same women who had witnessed him die and who had witnessed uh, the, uh, the burial of Jesus as well. And it was in order to honor Jesus uh, in some way, uh, having completed the burial process. But as they come, we see an announcement uh, from the tomb. Uh, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And when they entered, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Uh, It says there that uh, not just that they were startled. Maybe you've had that experience when you walk into a room and someone is uh, out of your field of vision and you turn and there they are. You can be startled. That's not what it says here. It doesn't say that they were just surprised or startled that someone else was in the tomb vault at the same time. It says that they were alarmed. Uh, It's a word that has a mixture of shock and fear. Uh, It's the same word that was used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That as Jesus was preparing for the betrayal and the crucifixion, as these things were looming large in Jesus' own experience, it says that he was alarmed. And now these, same, uh, these women have that same or a similar experience capturing them. Because it's not just someone is there, but the person who is there is extraordinary. Mark describes the person as wearing a white robe. The other gospels tell us that he was wearing dazzling apparel and that his appearance was like lightning. In other words, this wasn't an ordinary visitor. This was an angelic visitor. This was an angel coming to communicate to them what had happened. An angel was seated there on the right side, seated in the posture of ready to announce and to explain, to teach. Those who would come are needing to be explained. 
And just as at the beginning when Jesus' birth came, it was angels who announced and interpreted these events. Now it is an angel again who is interpreting what is taking place so that they would be able to enter into the joy of God's works. And this angel really has uh, an announcement, uh, uh, two announcements. One is to announce Jesus' resurrection. He announces the work of resurrection. And you notice there uh, the, the staccato things of uh, the angel. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Uh, uh, he is uh, not here, but see the place where they have laid him. Uh, he is stressing to them uh, the wonder of what has just happened. The very first thing he tells them is not to be alarmed. The thing that they are, he tells them they should not be. Because this isn't a time for them to be filled with fear, but it is a time for them to be filled uh, with joy and celebration. He tells them that you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. There's a connection here, a continuity. The man that they saw died. The man that they saw being entombed is a man who has been risen from the dead. And so uh, there, there's a, a, a connection between the Jesus who lived, Jesus of Nazareth, with the resurrected Jesus who is Lord. And so he tells them, uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. He has risen. At the center of this statement is a, a declaration of God's triumph over death. The event that was frozen in their mind has to give way. That the event that had gripped them and had filled them with such uh, uh, shock was to give way to a realization that it was not the end. Death was not the end. He has risen. He is not here. He explains uh, to them that the body of Jesus is no longer here. And he says, see the place where they laid him. At least two of those women knew where Jesus' body was. They didn't need to be directed. They saw it themselves. And so when he invites them to look, they know where to look. And they see that the place where Jesus was, he is no longer it's a message of life over death. When we hear about death, we oftentimes think about it in physiological or biological ways. We think about uh, the heart stopping, or we think about the brain activity stopping, or we try to describe it in some kind of physiological way. But when we talk about death, the Bible gives us a much broader way of thinking about death. Because it's not just a physical thing. Death, if we're going to understand it, is, is something that is linked with the curse of sin. That death is something of an anomaly because it is not the way things are meant to be. That death is an enemy. And it is the result of our rebellion against God. And so when this an angel comes announcing that Jesus is no longer dead, he is risen. It is an announcement of life triumphing over death. It is the announcement that death is not the end, but that God's power has conquered the power of sin. It has conquered the power of death itself. And that's really something that the Old Testament scriptures emphasized. 
You go back and you read the Old Testament and you, you read even in the opening book of the Bible, Enoch walked with God and then he was not for God had taken him. What is the point of highlighting that? But to draw attention that death was not meant to be the end. Even though we lived in a world that was subjugated to death, God had always purposed to bring life out from death. You think about Elijah. Elijah who was taken up in the chariots of fire, the chariots uh, of fire with horses. And Elijah escapes from the power of death. You think about the Psalms that speak about even after my body has seen decay, I will see God's face and be satisfied. You think about Job. You think about Daniel that says that the dead will be raised up. The hope of the old covenant scriptures was is that life would conquer death. That death was not the end. And here this angel is announcing God has done something. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has triumphed over it. Which means much more than simply that his heartbeat is beating again. It means that the power of death has been conquered. This is a message of good news. And so it is for this reason that the angel is seated uh, to teach uh, these people who have come to the tomb. And so it is an announcement uh, not to fill them with dread, but ultimately with joy. God's work has been realized in Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. How do we see it's God's doing? It's in the resurrection. The one who has died has risen by the power of God. But there's also the announcement not only of resurrection, there's the announcement of God's work of restoration. Notice the uh, visitor in that tomb vault uh, goes on there in verse 7. And he says, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You go back and you remember that before Jesus was arrested, before he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples, he said, every one of you will, be, will flee from me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And we're told that every one of them ultimately did. But you remember that Peter protested that. Peter protested the idea that he would forsake Jesus. It was Peter, after all, who had confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was Peter who made that verbal declaration. It was Peter who was willing to stand with Jesus. And yet Jesus goes on to tell him that before this night is over, he will deny him three times. Before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me. And you read on, and as Peter is giving this testimony here in Mark's gospel, it tells us that when the rooster crowed twice, Jesus looked at Peter down in the courtyard. And when Jesus looked down at Peter, Peter remembered what Jesus had said. And Peter broke down and wept. Peter was a broken man. How could someone 
who had confessed Jesus as Lord forsake him and deny him. But when Jesus made that prediction, when he says I, that all his disciples will be scattered, as it is written in the prophet of Zechariah, when Jesus said those words, Jesus said to them in that passage as well that he would raise them up. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, Jesus was saying the scattering would be temporary. And as a good shepherd, Jesus would gather again his disciples. That even though John and Thomas and Philip, all these men would abandon Jesus, he would gather them again because that's what a shepherd does. He would gather his scattered sheep. And now that message is coming out. But you notice that this message that comes from the angel is go and tell his disciples that Jesus is going before you to Galilee, just like he said. This was all part of God's sovereign plan. God is still in control. Even though this has been something traumatic for you and for your faith, It has all been undergirded by God's purposes and God's goodness. But notice there, it doesn't stop with go and tell the disciples. It says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter needs to hear that as well. Peter needs to hear that it's not just God's mercy extends to sinners. Peter needs to hear it extends to me. That God's grace extends to those who even were embarrassed and disassociated from their Lord. And even though Peter was embarrassed to associate with Jesus, the good shepherd is not embarrassed to associate with him. And so this message is extended not just to the disciples broadly, but it extends even uh, to Peter in particular. The Bible teaches us that we have all sinned, that we are all guilty before God. That's what we were singing about in Psalm 143. In your presence, none is right. That's something we have to have firmly convinced in our heads, that we are all guilty before God. But there can become a point when we move from guilt to shame, when we move from a sense of I am guilty before God to thinking I am worthless before God and God has no use of me because of what I have done, that we move from a sense of ownership of our wrongs to a hopeless despair because of our failings. And we can almost become, we can become very distorted in that, Because we can start to assert certain teachings while denying certain implications. We can start to say things like God is a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who forgives. He forgives sinners generally. It's just that he doesn't forgive me in particular. God's grace extends to his disciples broadly. It just doesn't go to Peter in particular. Peter denied knowing Jesus. And what this message is announcing is is that God's grace extends to sinners, particularly to Peter. And if it extends to people like Peter, then it also extends 
to people like us, to people like you. If you recognize yourself as a sinner before God, then recognize there is a Savior that is provided in Jesus. That there is one who can cover your sins and one who welcomes you into the fold of God. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the good shepherd who gathers those who have scattered. He's the good shepherd who retrieves those who are lost in their sins. And if you put your trust in him, he will save you. This angel's announcement is not just that Jesus has risen. It's that the good shepherd restores. The good shepherd has come to restore those who have turned into their sins. And we can celebrate this morning that it extends to people like Peter. And we can identify with Peter. We have all done things that are uh, 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 sinful, and we may feel like it disqualifies us. But God's grace extends to those who are undeserving. That's what mercy is. That's what grace is. If we recognize our sins, we can turn to the one who is a savior of sinners. Jesus' resurrection from the dead then teaches us that the curse of sin has been canceled and that eternal life is found in him. Have you been restored to God yourself? Are you trusting in this Savior who has been raised from the dead? It tells us in verse 8 that the women, they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they, were, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Obviously that did not remain or we wouldn't have their testimony that they didn't say anything to anyone. Uh, they eventually open up and they tell others. As we read of here, uh, Jesus would appear to Mary Magdalene, uh, the one who herself was the last at the cross, is the first to be relieved of her sorrows. The one who herself was oppressed and afflicted by demons is the first to find the joy of God's salvation in the resurrection. But why is it significant here that the announcement goes from the angel then to the women? It's significant in a number of ways. One of them is, is that in the ancient world, the testimony of women was viewed as less credible than the testimony of men in court cases. That people would look with suspicion on the testimony of women. And so if this is something that is being made up, it makes no sense to have the whole of your faith based on a suspicious foundation. And to... To see that teased out, you can turn in the early church in the second century. There's a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus. And Celsus would mock the Christian movement as those who were believing in the gossip of women about an empty tomb. The gossip of women. Their announcement is all based on these women who saw something. But that announcement has life and death implications. It is the death of death in the source of life. It is the fact that Jesus gave his life and has been risen to newness of life that we can have hope. And so the, the announcement here through these women becomes foundational for the Christian faith. And it's one that causes us to have to give an answer ourselves. How do we think about the empty tomb? There's only a couple of options. 
The tomb was empty. Why is it empty? One option is to say is the, the disciples stole it. They took the body themselves and then spread this message. But that has all kinds of problems in it. To tamper with a grave, even in the ancient world, was a capital crime. Why would someone risk uh, entering a tomb and uh, uh, doing something like that if it brought such consequences? More than that, why would the disciples live a life and be willing to die for something that they knew not to be true? The other option is, is that the resurrection really happened. That this announcement is the work of God. That the disciples were willing to die for their faith because the Lord had risen. Because they had seen him themselves. Because the announcement made sense. And not only did it make sense to them because of what Jesus said. It made sense to them because that's what the scriptures said. As it says in Psalm 16, they are able to embrace what the prophet said. Therefore, my heart is glad for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one, your Messiah, your anointed one to see the tombs decay. God will not allow me to remain in the realm of death because God will not allow his Messiah to be defeated by it. He will raise his son in triumph. The empty tomb is fundamental and foundational for hope in this world. It tells us that death is not the end. Life conquers death by the power of God. It tells us that there is victory over sin because the penalty has been accepted. The sacrifice of Christ has paid for our sin. It shows us that the curse of sin has been broken and that those who trust in Jesus can share in resurrection life. It celebrates the fact that God's work of mercy extends to sinners, not just broadly, but to particular sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over the empty tomb, we pray, Lord, that we would see that these events uh, call for a response. We pray, Lord, that we would understand that we must be able to give an explanation as to how these things took place. But we pray, Lord, as well, that we would see them in light of our own condition and that we would recognize that we, too, stand in need of comfort. And we pray, Lord, that as we declare your works of righteousness, that we would find the comfort of God. Uh, as uh, um, uh, a blessing to ourselves and to others. Go before us, we pray then, in Jesus' name. Amen.